If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. What are you waiting for? Come on in. This podcast may contain graphic content and strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, ladies. Hi. How are you? Good morning. How is everybody doing? Fantastic. Wonderful. Good. Good to hear your voice, Lynn. It is good to be here along with all my friends. I thought maybe you were going to say it is good to hear my voice. <laughs> no, it's good to be here with all my friends. I have lots of friends here. I know. I recognize not just one anymore. Bobby has told uh, his friends about us. So we have several raccoons that visit us. And yesterday, Bobby came up to the glass door, which I was sitting next to, and put his nose where my hand was. Wow, Bobby is a raccoon for anybody who doesn't know. Yes, Bobby is a slightly destructive raccoon because Bobby doesn't quite understand he weighs enough to break lots of of, uh, bird feeders. And the funny thing is they're very nocturnal. So Bobby had been coming out about 10 o'clock. So we take the bird feeders down about 10 o'clock. And we would leave little pieces of corn and stuff out. But, uh, Then Bobby was like, oh, I think I should come earlier before they do it. So he came out at 9.30 and we were like, oh, well, we'll take the bird feeder down at 9.30 and then 9 o'clock. And then he comes out even earlier to get to the bird feeders, which is hilarious because he's clever. He came out this morning after Brennan put them up. (laughs) Raccoons are very smart. They are. They are very smart. They are, and they're so dang cute. Oh, my gosh, their little hands and their noses. And when he came up and he looked at me through the window and he put his his nose, I was like, oh, my gosh, he just booked me with through the glass. So we have a relationship. All right, everybody, all of our alibis, welcome to Murder, Mischief, and Moscato, where we now know the entire story of Bobby the Raccoon. I'm Mary Swartz. I'm Hannah Green. And I'm Lynn Samuels, Bobby's new best friend. (laughs) Jesus.
Someday we may be telling you the story of how Lynn was murdered by a raccoon named Bobby. We have discussed the fact that at some point when we stop putting theaters and stuff up that uh, they may revolt and break in and kill us. So, yeah, we've already warned our neighbors if they find us dead and ripped apart that it probably wasn't a serial killer. It was a raccoon and it's our own fault. Okay, and we'll do a podcast about it. Yep, but much like people who pick up hitchhikers, we're willing to take the chance. Wow. Good to know. That was your PSA for the day. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right, girls, are you ready? Of course. Okay. So anyway, welcome to Murder, Mischief, and Moscato. You know who we are. What have we got Um, going on on the other podcast? So today is June 22nd, and on June 26th, next Sunday, we have the story of When Opposites Attract. Oh? The three of us attended a rather unusual wedding. We did? And this is the story about the unusual wedding. Oh, I had forgotten about that wedding. <laughs> How could you forget? Weddings are special. I don't know. I will say that the most um, interesting wedding invitation that I ever received, which I did decline to go to, did state on it, please bring a dish to pass and money for the money tree. Well, I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> really. I, I have totally done things wrong. Okay, so um, on that episode, we also meet the Rubik's Cube champion of the world, which was pretty awesome, and I think Hannah was a little surprised by that. Yes. Um, and we, we were introduced to a PETA protester who protested in quite an unusual way, and the discussion that was had over the PETA protester was rather, rather interesting. All right. Lynn? Yes? What are you drinking this morning? Hmm. Three guesses and the first doesn't count. Only the, the first, first count. The first count. the first doesn't count, but the second does. Yes, the second does. Alright. So my first guess is coffee, but it doesn't count. Okay. It doesn't count. My second <clears throat> guess did, guess is a raccoon smoothie. Oh ouch. <laughs> I don't even wanna know, like it's all the things the raccoon has brought and left for you to put in your smoothie. Oh, that's not where I thought you were going with the smoothie. Oh, here's the deal about raccoon friendship. Raccoons are takers. They're takers. They are not givers. They do not give you gifts. They're not like a cat or anything else. You hmm. will get nothing from them other than destruction. Food. They're very selfish. Yes. Okay, my third guess. Friends. My third guess is a bird seed milkshake. Hmm. Well, the first one didn't count, and the second two are so far off. But, you know, Mary, you want to give it a go? Well, rum no, and coke. Knowing who your family is, rum and frickin' coke, yeah. Yeah, no. It's coffee. It's coffee. <laughs> wow. All right. We're drinking a very lovely lavender margarita this week. Oh, dang. A lavender margarita. Delicious. Yep. Made by yours truly. D-freaking-licious. I said, did you make a whole pitcher? She said, no, we don't usually drink a whole one. I'm like thinking, we're going to need more than one glass. Usually we barely finish a glass before the end of the podcast because we get busy chatting. We do. All All right. right. Birthday. Yeah, we have a birthday. We do. Happy birthday to someone. Is that all we're getting out of you? Unhappy birthday to the douchebag of the day. Okay, I frequently use douchebag in my birthdays. June 22nd. 1942. George Emil Banks. That's when he was born. Hey, it wasn't George Banks the father in Mary Poppins? Mm-hmm. He was. Okay. Huh. Well, the 
This guy was a state prison guard at Camp Hill State Prison in Pennsylvania. Now, in September of 1982, after their conflict with a supervisor, an evaluation that found him, quote, filled with hate and anger at the world in general, end quote, George was relieved of his duties at the prison. Nothing's going to go wrong here. I, I can already feel it. He's going to go home and eat a cupcake and cry in his cup of tea. And go out in the garden. Life changes he needs to make and become a better person and devote himself to God. Yes. Wow, I don't even need to finish. You guys are done. You, you guys did it all. Okay. Anyway, let's go back to the real story. On September 25th of 1982, George committed what is known as the Wilkes Bar shootings, which I was not familiar with. Dressed in military fatigues on the morning of the 25th, George used an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle to kill eight people in his house. Regina Clemens, Montanzima Banks, who was only six years old, Susan Yuhas, Buende Banks, who's only four years old, Mora Tanya Banks, who's only 20 months old, Dorothy Lyons, Nancy Lyons, she's an 11-year-old, and Farad Banks, who is one-year-old. Banks then went outside, where he saw 22-year-old Jimmy Olson and 24-year-old 24 24-year-old Ray Hall Jr. leaving a home across the street. He shot at them both, reportedly yelling that they would not tell anyone about this before he fired at them. He hit both men, fatally wounding Hall. Olson survived. Banks got in a car and drove away. Wow. At that point in time, Banks went to the Heather Highlands Mobile Home Park, where his former girlfriend, Sharon Mazio, and their son, Kisamayu, lived. Now, he had been trying to get custody of his son, obviously. He hadn't gotten there yet. Uh, he forced his way in, and he shot Sharon. He then shot and killed his sleeping son. Apparently, the custody whole thing wasn't really serious. He then killed Sharon's mother while she was trying to call the police and Sharon's seven-year-old nephew, who was also in the home. Now, hiding in the closet was Sharon's brother that he did not see. He was the only survivor, and he did end up calling the police, and he identified Banks as the shooter. Banks, or police, police began to search for Banks, who abandoned his car, and then he carjacked another vehicle. After abandoning the stolen vehicle, he stopped in a grassy, isolated area to rest, and he fell asleep. Well, that was a lot of work. It is. That's a lot of work. Um, So as of September 30th of 1982, he was charged with eight counts of murder, attempted murder, aggravated assault, reckless endangerment, grand theft auto, armed robbery, and felonious theft. He was held without bail, which does not always happen. Okay, I'm just... Why the why these people? Why not go after I don't know the supervisor? I'm so confused. I don't know because there really was never any reason given. What a there whack. was just never any reason given. What an um, absolute whack job. Banks' attorney obviously argued that he was insane, but the jury found him guilty of twelve counts of first degree murder, one count of third degree murder, attempted murder, aggravated assault, and one count each of robbery, theft, and endangering the life of another person. They recommended the death penalty. So, at that point in time, he's incarcerated at the Maximum Security Unit at Huntington until November of 1985. His appeals reached the Supreme Court. It refused to overturn his verdict. At that point in time, they sent him to the Correctional Institute at Gratterford. From 1987 to 2000, his attorneys continued to appeal his case. I I don't know how many times you can appeal, and, and what's the highest? I thought if the Supreme Court said no, you were done. Me too. <clears throat> so... The Supreme Court 
refused to hear the attorney's argument that he lacked the mental capacity to be executed. The Pennsylvania governor twice signed a death warrant for Banks. However, both times the federal appellate courts stopped that from happening. Now in 2010, Judge, let's remember this guy's name, Judge Joseph M. Agulo, Agulo ruled that Banks was mentally incompetent for execution and he could not assist his attorneys. He would continue to be held in a restricted housing unit at Gratiford Prison. Now, as of September 2017, he's still on death row. Doesn't look like it's ever going to happen because if they say he's incompetent to be executed, well, you know, we can't execute this dude who killed 12 people. So happy on birthday to this asshat. Sorry, I didn't use douchebag today. <laughs> who should have been executed for his crimes. Wow. Yeah, he was... You know, I my personal opinion is when you have such a crime that is so well thought out and so well executed, that is not mental incapacity. No. You knew what the hell you were doing. Yeah. You knew it was wrong. Yep, absolutely. All right. So do we have some on this days, ladies? I do. Lighten up the mood. Well, this one is both sad but surprisingly upbeat. In Cleveland, on June 22, 1969, the severely polluted Cuyahoga River caught on fire. The river caught on fire. Holy shit! When an oil slick floating on the surface was ignited. Now, that sounds really awful. Wasn't the first time. Wow. Yeah. However, this time, the incident actually gained national attention and eventually, the whole incident led to anti-pollution measures that substantially improved the river's condition. Well, good. That is a good good thing. Yes. But it's sad that it took the river catching on fire multiple times for yeah. them to go, hmm, maybe there's a problem here. When any river catches on fire, I think there's a problem. All right, Lynn, what you got? All right. Uh, on this day, June 22nd, 1633. The Pope recommended that Galileo Galilei be called before an inquisition for writing a book saying that the earth orbits the sun. In 1616, they had issued an edict forbidding this view. Galileo had a letter from a cardinal who had since died saying he could not hold nor defend the theory, but he could bring it up. But to appease the church, he was willing to say that he overstated his scientific case on the earth orbiting the sun. He was found guilty of heresy and condemned to life in prison. He was not tortured, as people have said, or, or in an actual prison, though. He stayed in a palace for a few months with the archbishop, who was actually a friend of his, before moving to a villa in the hills above Florence for the rest of his life. Wow. So that's how being imprisoned works. You can sign me up, just so you know. By the way, the Vatican finally admitted that it was wrong after 359 years. Wow. On October 31st, 1992, John Paul II officially declared Galileo was correct. Yeah, 1992, they finally came out and said, oh, I guess the Earth does orbit the sun. Not saying they're a little behind or anything, but... That's crazy, girl. Uh, yeah. 
That is kind of crazy. Yep. Do we have any Another One Bites the Dust this week, girls? I, I do not. not. Okay. All right. Then let's jump into your story, girl. All right. I've got a great story for us this week. You usually do. Imagine, if you will, that you're making the rounds of the garage and the estate sales in your area. Perhaps you're looking for something specific. Freezer? Perhaps you are just trolling for whatever Pocket. catches your eye. Time capsule? A diamond in the rough or a secret treasure. She's trying to ignore me over here. <laughs> I know. I think it's a coffin. I think you're looking for a coffin. We found one once. We, we found one. I we, know. we also found I a know. snake. They were in the same residence. You never know exactly what it is that you might find at these sales. I honestly think that for most of us, that's part of the excitement. One man's trash is another man's treasure. Yep. Now imagine that you don't even have to go looking for that treasure. Uh Uh-oh. It almost comes to you. FedEx? (laughs) UPS? Well, with Craigslist and eBay, I mean, you buy all kinds of things nowadays. Now, in 1986, a man who wished to be known as Gabby was moving away from Thermopolis, Wyoming. He had a shed on his property, and the shed had some stuff in it that he couldn't easily take with him right now when he was moving. Okay. Uh, He offered the shed to his friend, Newell Sessions. The whole shed or everything in the shed? The shed itself. So you take the shed? And basically, here's the deal. The shed was frozen to the ground when he left. Oh, okay. So once the ground thawed, Newell would move the shed onto his own property. He could have the shed, use the shed. The contents in the shed would still be Gabby's, and Gabby would come back and get them. Okay. 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 Not really, but okay. So the two men agreed to this plan, and Gabby moved off to Texas. Okay. So when spring came and the ground thawed, Newell moved the shed, as agreed upon, onto his property. And at one point in the future, at some point down the road, Gabby came back to Wyoming. And he took some of the stuff, but he couldn't take everything with him. Okay. Okay. Fit it all in his vehicle, probably. Now, one of the things that remained behind in the shed was an old footlocker. It was padlocked shut. I wish you could see Mary's face. I can see it. Not enough alcohol in the world for the story already. I know what people put in footlockers and then padlock them shut, okay? Because of what we do, I know about footlockers. Feet, right? Because that's it's a foot locker. Yes, and then they lock it up. It's a pair of feet. Well, <clears throat> the padlock on the footlocker was old. And for years, the footlocker just sat in the shed that Newell now owned. Finally, six years later, in 1992... Curiosity got the better of him, and Newell decided that he wanted to try to open the footlocker. Before he did, though, he tried to get in contact with Gabby to talk to him about it. But his attempts fell through. He, he could not get a hold of Gabby. Okay. On March 29, 1992, Newell, who at that time was 68 years old. Okay. So imagine, I'm thinking dad. Just imagine dad here. Because as I was doing this story, I was thinking dad. I can't even because it. Dad, listen, if if somebody said to Dad, "Hey, I've got this shed. It's got some stuff in it." Oh, he absolutely can, would. He he'd have taken would. it. He would have left the stuff in the shed. He'd have he just moved would. it off to the side. He would. He, he would have thought nothing of it. I know. Not I don't see curiosity thing. getting the better of him. Going, I need to see what's in here. Well, 
That's where we would have come in and said, what's in there? And Dad would have said, I don't, I don't know. know. And then we would have put the drug in his ear and said, you should look. We can get it's a key for that. Right. So, Newell, 68 years old, and some friends, they're hanging out at his property when Newell made the decision that it was time. What hidden treasures could be within the confines of the footlocker? Using a cutting torch with his friends there to view the newfound treasure... Newell cut the lock off of the locker. Opening it revealed an empty tray. Sitting in the top of it, an empty tray. Okay. Well, that's okay. pretty disappointing. Yeah. No nothing. treasure there. No treasure. Nothing at all. Yep. Lifting the tray out of the top of the locker revealed a whole other story. The locker was definitely not empty. There was a rotting piece of plastic, but that wasn't all. Because if it was, this would be a stupid story to tell you. <laughs> Do that at some point and be like, and they open it, and there was nothing, and that's really all the story. Have a great day, guys. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) To everyone's shock, and I can only imagine horror, below the tray were human bones. The skull was right on the top, Newell later said. Everyone was pretty quiet. They didn't really know what to say. Would you, even if you think that that is what you're expecting to find, because of how, how suspicious we are. Alas, poor Yorick. Alas, poor Yorick. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Okay. That one went <laughs> right over my head. <laughs> so Newell's wife, Daisy, wants to know what he's going to do about this. What are you planning to do? What are, you, what, are, what are we, you know, what are you thinking? Give him time to think, woman. So Newell thought about it. I don't need time to think you have just found dead body in a thing. What do you think about? Nine, one, one. Well, Newell thought about it and told Daisy that he thought that perhaps he should give the remains a proper burial. Oh my gosh. Here's the thing. I can almost, in a way, see Dad doing this. Uh, No. This is going to be dead. Here, I can see. Listen. I can see Dad weighing it, though. Call the police, deal with everything. It's probably nothing. Quietly bury them and give them a proper burial see, and call Because no, Dad's head would have said, obviously they could not afford to bury this poor person. I will help them. See? Because Dad was generous and thoughtful like that. Daisy was not okay with this idea, though. <clears throat> I, on the other hand, would have dressed him up, put him on a pair of roller skates, and paraded him down the road. <laughs> You just sat him in a you just sat him in a chair on the side of the river with a beer in one hand and a welcome to the river sign in the other. Oh yes. Not an attached skeleton. It's a We can rearticulate bone. it. Trust me, I can rearticulate it. It might take me some time, but I can rearticulate it. <clears throat> so Daisy told Newell that what he was going to do was call the authorities. He married a smart woman, okay. But before Newell calls the authorities Newell decided he should call Gabby. Oh, forgot. He's been trying to call Gabby. He's been trying. I can't even wrap my head around this. Uh, dude, I found your body. What do you want me to do with it? Is Newell a stoner? I don't know. <laughs> now, Newell... I'm, Newell, I'm going to need your drink by the time this is over. Newell was able to get a hold of, of Gabby. And Gabby told Newell that he did recall the footlocker. He told Newell that... It was locked when he bought it and that he was never able to open it. Bullshit. 
I call bullshit on this he story. He thought he might have bought it at a garage sale, maybe. Along with a freezer. He didn't really remember the details around it because it'd been <clears throat> so long ago. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. He wasn't even sure when or where he had acquired this footlocker. Then Newell told Gabby about what was in the footlocker, and Gabby was shocked. Gabby thought that Newell was joking. I'm not even sure anymore when I think of this term. Mary needs a drink. Yes, I do. I know. I, I, I'm just going to say I believe Gabby. <clears throat> now, after speaking with Gabby, Newell contacted the Hot Springs County Sheriff, John Lumley. Sheriff Lumley responded to the residents and took the report after viewing the remains in the footlocker. He definitely did not believe the story he was being told. I don't believe the story I'm being told. I, exactly. Who can blame him? This whole story is very bizarre. <clears throat> so he decides the whole story may, sounds completely made up. He had the remains sent to the coroner's office, <clears throat> and he contacted Gabby, who he also finds to be completely unbelievable. Uh, yeah. Now, suspicious, Lumley ran a background check on Gabby. He found that Gabby had several run-ins with the police over the years. Hmm. No, you can't say that because it depends on what kind of run-ins. Were they traffic tickets? Yeah, that doesn't make a murderer. That doesn't make you a murderer. No, it doesn't, but Did it was enough. Did you run an old lady over trying to cross the street? It was, it was, I don't know what they were. I couldn't find the records, but... <clears throat> It was enough to make Sheriff Lumley even more suspicious. Lumley cannot help but wonder, probably much like us and our listeners, why Gabby would haul this footlocker with him from state to state for years. Never knowing what was inside. Without ever opening it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I don't buy it. Gabby told the sheriff that he had bought mm. it with the plan to use it as a tool chest, but had never been able to get the lock open. He said that he had tried several different skeleton keys. No pun intended. <laughs> the look on Mary's face. I admit it's not intended because it's a perfect pun. <laughs> the look on Mary's face. <laughs> you just pass your fucking glass over. <laughs> I would think that he sounds like he's somebody who has some serious skeletons in his closet. <laughs> nope. They're in his footlocker. But none of the skeleton keys had ever worked on the old lock. He said that he didn't own a saw or a torch to cut the lock, and it, that eventually he just quit trying because it was more work than it was worth. He had just shoved it in his shed and left it there. And every time he moved, he just moved it with him and shoved it in his shed or his garage and left it there. And in a way, I can. Th Dad would have done that shit. He did he do that have. shit. He did. So how many times did he move that Coke machine without having a key for it? Exactly. Thank you. So, part of me can say, okay, yeah, maybe I get it. Now, the coroner's office contacted Sheriff Lumley fairly quickly to let him know that the remains in the locker were, in fact, a homicide. There was a bullet found lodged in the skull behind the left eye socket. Yeah, that's an indication. The sheriff was going to need to talk to Gabby again. 
Sheriff Lumley hoped that he would have more success in person, so he got on a plane and he flew to Arlington, Texas, which is where Gabby now lives. But even in person, Gabby only had vague details to share about the Foot Locker. He thought that he might have bought it at a garage or an estate sale in Wyoming, Iowa, Illinois, Arizona, Texas, or perhaps Oklahoma. Bullshit. See, I'm just calling bullshit. Any real garage sailor knows where you get your treasures from. They know. It could have been as early as 1973. No, I'm calling bullshit on the whole thing. He was completely unsure. Now, here's the thing. To be fair, Mary, I have bought some really awesome stuff at at garage sales and all over the country. I probably couldn't tell you where or when I bought them. Me too. I could tell you I bought it at a garage sale. That's about what I could tell you. John Lumley did not believe Gabby at all, though. He thought that Gabby may not have killed the victim, but he did believe that Gabby knew a lot more than he was sharing with the police. The victim and the locker were sent to the Wyoming State Crime Lab with the hope that they could find more information that might lead to justice and closure for the victim and the victim's loved ones. The footlocker and the padlock were made in the 1930s. The victim was a Caucasian male, 30 to 50 years old, 5'8 to 5'9. He was a large man who may have worn dentures. Oddly, both of the man's lower leg bones were missing, and so was one of his hands. Who may have worn dentures? Like they didn't know? That is what it says. sure? That is what it said. And he had no legs. His lower leg bones were missing. His feet were there. His knees were there. His lower leg bones were missing, okay? And one of his hands was missing. None of this makes any sense. The bullet was sent to their firearms examiner, who was able to determine that it was shot from a 25 caliber Colt semi-automatic pistol with a two-inch barrel. That particular gun was produced in the early 1900s and was first available in the U.S. in 1908. And when did they stop making that? Didn't say. The angle of the shot told them that he had been shot by a right-handed person at close range. There were also indications on his ribs that he may have been shot more than once. The locker also contained a belt and that rotting piece of plastic. That plastic turned out to be the remnants of a bag from Hy-Vee's, a grocery store that was popular in Iowa. The logo on the bag had not been produced since the early 1950s, though. Authorities now believed that the man had been murdered somewhere between the 1940s and the 1960s. They also believed that the man had at one time been buried, before he was dug up and put in the locker. Where do you find this shit? If I told you, I'd have to kill you. Wait till I finish my drink first, at least, okay? Okay. <clears throat> my God, this is a very twisty, turny story. The locker was not government issue, but there were marking, markings found on the footlocker that led them to believe that the locker may have been used at one time by someone who was in the U.S. Armed Forces. More specifically, perhaps the Illinois National Guard between World War I and World War II. A 3D reconstruction was created out of clay in hopes of helping further identification. Okay. Now, one day, a young teen girl named Shelly read an article about the case in an Iowa newspaper. Her father mentioned to her that it was possible that the remains belonged to her grandfather, her mother's father. She didn't really give it a whole lot of thought, though, after that. She didn't really pay a lot of attention. She was a teenager, and that was kind of a weird thing to say. Now, in February of 1993, so 
This all happened in, like, the body was discovered in March of 82. Okay? Okay, so we're talking 10, 11 years later. 11 years later. Okay. In February of 93, the case of the bones in the trunk were featured on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Ooh. Remember that show? I used to love that show. Now we're getting serious. The authorities were flooded with tips. They were contacted by more than 10 families as well, who all thought that it was possible that the remains may have been a family member of theirs. Now, as Shelley had grown up, she'd become more interested in her own family history, like many of us do. She wanted to know more about her grandfather and his story, the one that her dad had casually mentioned might be the one in the trunk. Now, after the episode aired in February of 1993, Shelley and her mother, Catherine, also known as Kathy or Katie, tried to contact the authorities. They really believed that it was possible that the victim was Catherine's dad. Her dad was Joseph Jr. Mulvaney. Now, for a multitude of reasons, some of them important, some of them bullshit, it took years for them to actually connect with the person that they needed to connect with in order to have this pursued. Now, on October 19th, 2017, more than 25 years after the remains were discovered, DNA was collected from Catherine for testing against the DNA of the victim. October 25th of 2017. So 25 years after they air this episode and Catherine decides that this could very well be her father, then they test her DNA? Mm -hmm. She could have been dead by then. And a lot happens in 25 years. Yep. So on October 25th, 2017, it was confirmed that the victim was Catherine's father, Shelley's grandfather, Joseph Mulvaney. Now, here's the thing. This is where that part of the story all sucks, but this this is the part that I like. Joseph Jr. Mulvaney deserves to have his story told and his voice heard. And I am thrilled to be able to share details about Joseph that we don't usually know because his granddaughter, Shelly, has worked tirelessly to keep her grandfather's memory alive. So Joseph was born on January 3rd, 1921 in Mattoon, Illinois, to Catherine and Joseph Mulvaney. He was their only child and he was very loved. The pictures that you can find online of the family show the pride and the love that they felt for their son. In April 1929, when Joseph was eight years old, he fell out of the loft at his Grandpa John's barn and he broke his left arm. When he was 18, Joseph almost died in a mudslide and he was saved by two of his friends. There is a newspaper article about it. And in 1941, When Joseph was 20, he joined the Illinois National Guard. He had very deep and personal reasons for choosing to be a part of our our nation's armed forces. He was assigned to the 130th Infantry in the 33rd Division. During World War II, he was deployed to the Pacific Theater. He also spent time in Australia and the Philippines during his service. So way back when, they thought he might have been part of the National Guard... I cannot believe they did not pursue those leads and and Um, uncover him that way. So one of the things that I found out when they were actually looking, trying to confirm that he was a part of the National Guard, there was a massive fire that burned up all of the records for a huge chunk of years. And his records were one of them. Wow. Yep. Sadly, while he was deployed overseas, his beloved mother, Catherine, contracted tuberculosis. And she passed away in 1945 at the age of 50. After being honorably discharged from the National Guard, Joseph made a living working for the railroads. He worked as a brakeman. He met and married Mary 
Alice McLees soon after. Now she had a son from a previous relationship named John David Morris, and soon they added three children of their own. Catherine, named after his beloved mother. She was born in 1954. Joseph, also known as JJ, born in 1956. And Patrick, also known as Mike, because his middle name was Michael, and he was born in 1957. In 1961, the family moved to Des Moines, Iowa, where Mary Alice had grown up. In 1962, Joseph's father passed away. The only family he really had left now was his wife and his children. And in 1963, the family signed papers to buy a house there in Des Moines. It wasn't very long after the purchase of the house that Joseph simply disappeared. His children were told that he simply left, walking away from his family voluntarily. Catherine was only six or seven years old at that time, and she was the oldest child other than the stepson. He was never reported missing by anyone. Joseph has been described as a little ornery, but loyal and true and hardworking. It is now believed, but unconfirmed, that Mary Alice shot and killed her husband, and that her son, yep. John David Morris, buried yep. his remains in the backyard before digging them up sometime later and putting them in the footlocker. Yep, because she never reported him missing. John David Morris was also known as Gabby. The man who only wow. wished to be known as Gabby. Yeah, I just, yeah, I put those pieces together. Ironically, despite his desire to remain unidentified, he was actually named almost from the beginning in the newspaper articles that I found and read. Of course, the identity of the remains were unknown at that time, but he knew who it was. But he publicly, did. but he, he really publicly, like, for the, um, on the Unsolved Mysteries, they, they identify him as Gabby, and they, like, use a silhouette, and, like, it's all a big mystery, and, yeah, no, he's the stepson. Because he's an asshat. He moved that footlocker with him for more than 20 years from state to state. Now, why did he choose to leave it behind in 1986 and never retrieve it? Joseph's remaining family has stated that the marriage was never good, but the truth is that we will never really know what happened or why. Mary Alice died in 2009, before Joseph was ever identified. There have been reports that John David Morris committed suicide in Mississippi some years after the remains were discovered, but before they were identified. However, there are many reports, including statements from the family, that say that that's false. They say that he is still alive. It's said that while he did initially flee, he was later found. He faces no charges because there's no proof that he killed Joseph. If he is still alive, he has made no statements regarding the details of the murder of Joseph Mulvaney. It should be noted that if he is still alive, it is known by authorities that he has used several different aliases during his lifetime. Newell Sessions, the friend who opened the footlocker, he passed away in 2003, never knowing the identity of the victim he uncovered or the truth behind the footlocker left in his possession. Thank goodness that his curiosity got the better of him and that he chose to do the right thing and contact the sheriff. Thank goodness for his wife, you mean. Is that right, what you mean? It wasn't, he you was going to just get, bury the dude. No, no credit. No, no credit. Well, listen, no, I to do totally agree that the wife deserves credit here. So kudos to Daisy, but he could have just been a dick and just chose to do it anyway. And he didn't. In 2019, two years after he was identified, Joseph Jr. Mulvaney was released to his family. He was cremated and given a full military memorial service, complete with 21-gun salute, 
and a flag folding ceremony. It was attended by a great many people, not just his remaining family, the press, and law enforcement. And that makes my heart swell. <clears throat> his remains have been taken home to Iowa to be close to his remaining family. <sighs> All of Joseph's children have now passed away as well. Patrick, his youngest son, passed away in 2002 without ever knowing that his father had been found. His son, Joseph, passed away in April of this year, 2022. And Catherine, the daughter whose DNA helped bring a measure of closure to her family, passed away in May of this year. <clears throat> it's silly to get emotional, but it just, ugh. No, I understand. <laughs> I That was me last week, or last time, we, yeah, when we recorded last week's episode. Shelly... Joseph's granddaughter continues to work to bring her family's history to life and to give Joseph the voice that he deserves. Good for her. Good for her. <clears throat> if you happen to have any information regarding Joseph Jr. Mulvaney and his life, Shelly would love to hear from you. You can contact her by email at shellbear90 at gmail.com. It's kind of awesome to me because we don't usually get to to give our victims that much detail. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's obvious that his wife and stepson did it. I mean, it's so obvious. So freaking obvious. Um, that is just, yeah. It is. It's really cool. Shelly has put a lot of details about her grandfather online, available for the public, and she has shared family photos, and um, she did... I did find an article where her phone number was posted, at least as of 2019. That's not something I'm comfortable putting out there. No, that was exactly it. I'm not comfortable sharing that. No, it's not our job to share that. Um, So if you want to reach out to her, if you ever knew her her grandfather, um, and you'd like to share stuff with her, she, she would love to hear from you. It would mean the world. Well... This is, this is, when they initially did their death investigation and the coroner said he'd obviously been killed, they guesstimated that he was, that he had died in the late 40s, early 50s. Is that the, between the 40s and the 60s? Oh, okay. Okay. And he was actually shot and killed in, in 1963. 1963, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a huge time gap. Well, that's just like, they were estimating based on the remains that he was between 30 and 50 years old. And they never figured out why his leg bones weren't there. Oh! Oh! He'd been dug up up and they probably weren't all there. Yeah. Who knows how he was buried. disrespectful. Because, yeah, one of his hands was missing too. First of all, to shoot your stepdad who you might not have liked, but he took care of you. Well, we don't know whether it was the son, the the stepson, or the wife. Speculation by the family has said it, they... It may have been the wife. Here's the thing, though. If they didn't have a good marriage and you came home one day and your husband is missing and your stepson has done it and says, he said he was taken off, he said he was tired of this, you might believe that. I mean, she could absolutely have nothing to do with it. I'm just saying that for sure he did. Yeah, obviously for sure he did, but I think she did too. Well, and there were... There are comments that were posted, like the family posted a lot of comments. Um, The Sheriff's Department has a Facebook page, and 
when they posted the update when he was initially um, identified, the family commented a whole lot of stuff and it was really cool. And um, there are some things I found online where Shelly, the granddaughter, she called, she called Mary Alice Nanny. And so she has, you know, commented that she misses, I miss you, Nanny, those kind of things, like as a memorial on, on her pages and stuff. So it does appear that she did have a relationship with Mary Alice. Mary Alice was still involved in the family. Um, so who really knows? I don't think any None of, of us. us are, None of us. Unless, unless John David Morris decides to, you know, do the right thing and tell the truth about what happened, no one's ever going to know. Nope, you're right. It you, is pure speculation. You bring us the best stories. But in the end, it doesn't matter what happened or how. It's more important that this man has his identity back, his family has their loved one back, and his voice lives on. Good point. All right. Very good. I like it when we can bring the victims back to life. Yeah. In a non-creepy way. Yes. <laughs> yes. Please do not contact us and ask us to perform some weird voodoo ceremony and bring your, your loved one back. Yeah. We cannot do that. We don't do seances either. Nope, nope, nope. We are strictly a talk about them and All right. keep them alive that way. So we would like to thank everybody who stopped by, spent a little bit of their day with us, enjoyed Hannah's amazing story, and perhaps enjoyed Lynn's Bobby the Raccoon. <laughs> You can find us on if Facebook. If you have a raccoon story, you should definitely share. Oh, hell yes. No bad stories. You can find us on Facebook at Murder Mischief and Moscato or Mischief and Moscato at gmail.com or on Twitter at Murder Moscato. Um, the best thing you can do for us is rate and review so other people can find us. That's how you can support us. You can find us everywhere that you listen to your podcasts on, obviously. Um, the three of us do co-host this. We do all of our own research, so if you have a correction to a story, feel free. Anybody have anything else till next time? I have nothing. Absolutely nothing. When? Other than... I think you shouldn't leave sleeping dogs lie. Oh, I do have I do have final thought. We always have a final thought. Yeah. But I would just like you all to know that I did not get at all emotional while I was researching this, writing it, reading it to myself. Isn't that what I said last week? I was fine until I tried to tell everybody this story. Yeah, when I started talking about Judith Barslow, or Barcy, yeah, I got real emotional telling you guys that story. And as usual, our final thought for the day seems very appropriate because this makes me think of the granddaughter, Shelly. Okay. Every accomplishment begins with the decision to try. Amen. Till next week, guys, we love you. Have a fantastic day. Bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.